Yeah, great to have you along, Neve. So as I said uh, offline, it's very free-flowing. Whatever way you want to go with it, go with it. And uh, I'm sure we'll be all intrigued and ask questions at the end or if you want them during it, whatever works for you. Um, so I suppose I'll just I'll kick off. I'll read actually the back uh, of the book because it does summarize the book perfectly. Um, the book is called Work and Worth, Take Back Your Life. And the author is Dr. Tony Humphreys, who's a clinical psychologist and a lecturer and also an author. So how I came to, to read this book was I was making a transition in my role at work. And um, I was just coming back from maternity leave after having my third baby. And all through maternity leave, I had a huge amount of anxiety about this new job that I was coming back into. And I went actually, I went through the EAP program at work and ended up talking to basically like a, a counsellor who recommended this book to me around this subject. Because um, it was just, it was playing on my mind so much that I was waking up in the middle of the night, you know, practically like having nightmares about this job and stuff, which wasn't good. Um, and I shouldn't have really been thinking about work at all on maternity leave. So it really did dominate the time. And this book kind of just helped me sort out my thinking about work in general, but also specifically about the role and what, what actions I needed to take to be able to return to work in a positive mindset, essentially. So the questions the book asks is, uh, does our work control us or do we control our work? Is our sense of worth too closely tied to our work? Are we addicted to work at the expense of our personal lives? How responsible are we, the people we work with and the people we work for? Now, I suppose I came at this from a, a coaching perspective because I did train as a coach myself and I've discovered a passion for it on that journey. So I think this book holds a lot of really interesting questions from a coaching perspective. If you were to be coaching people who are having issues in terms of career change or just their general performance at work or identity with regard to how they relate to their job for example and that's the the way I found the book helpful for my own personal situation so um just to kick off I suppose I'll just go through the kind of summary of, of the book I suppose the chapters kind of take you on a journey through the book the first half really talks about the threats and the the challenges um when you're either addicted to work or you know fearful or you know uh, avoidant of work because there's two kind of ends of the spectrum um, and then the second half of the book really presents a lot of um, solutions around those various scenarios that you might find people in. Um, the thing I liked about the book the most was that it comes at it as well from a slightly if you want to say spiritual aspect in that the author talks a lot about how either the protective responses we have to work uh, or avoidant responses we might have to work or whether we're aggressive at work or controlling at work, all of these responses that we might have in different scenarios, those come um, because we feel unable to show our true selves at work and that really the essence of the problem is with your relationship with yourself and that you need to really tend to that. And if you want to succeed at work and if you're having problems at work, rather than looking externally for all these things that you could change, like going on management courses or going through HR, that you should start with you and get support for whatever the true source of the issues really is. Because the author would suggest that if we're having problems in relation to work, that really it could be something immediate in our lives that's causing those problems, but there's also likely an earlier experience that has shaped our, our view of work. And so our, our problematic response to it, if we're having that at this current moment in time, you know. Mm. 
So I thought that was really interesting um, because I suppose a lot of the problems I would have encountered at work in, in relation to teams or managers, we always look for the surface problem and we kind of go through the official channels to try and resolve those issues. And it would be rare to hear people talking about scratching the surface in, in a corporate environment anyway, you know, it's all about processes for resolving issues as opposed to asking these broader questions and maybe deeper questions that I'm seeing in this book. So, yeah. Um, does anyone have any questions at this point or will I blaze on? <laughs> oh, keep going. Nope. Right. Yeah. So the first chapter talks about the experience of work and worth. And I, again, I really like this idea that how we get on at work is very closely linked to how we value ourselves and where our self-worth is and our self-esteem and so on. And he also has a very expansive view of work. So he says, you know, everybody works. Some people go to jobs. Others take care of homes, children, the sick or the elderly. Still others do the laundry, clean the house, prepare meals and take care of pets. Each and every person works at something. So I, I like that broader view of work as well, that it's not just about your job. You know, work is, is the business of the everyday and what we all do outside of, of our nine to five as well would count as work. And that it's it's such an important aspect of our lives and it needs to be worthy of us is, is, is basically the position that the author is taking. And it talks about, you know, using your knowledge, your skills, your time, your energy, and that we should all be working in with dignity. So I really like that idea of work. It's a bit broader than maybe what we might think of when we talk about our careers and you know, our day-to-day -day jobs. Um, he also talks a lot about how work affects, you know, the wider situation you're in, your marriage and your family, and about the gender, you know, gender stereotypes within work. So that a lot of the time women perhaps wouldn't do roles that they thought typically would be done by men in the past. And that also men are somewhat disconnected sometimes from their hearts and confined to their heads because of our society's tendency to reinforce these gender stereotypes that we see playing out. So um, it also talks as well about the organization's need to be aware of workers and how their attitudes to work develop. And it puts a lot of uh, emphasis on the organization's responsibility to their workers. And it talks about the difficulties, that work difficulties may be remote or immediate, that the remote causes lie in the worker's early experiences and immediate causes may be due to current problems in the personal or family life of the employee or perhaps to an exploitative and uncaring workplace. So the book does bring back the responsibility of the organisation to be aware that it's actually an individual and collective responsibility to develop this a work culture and a management approach that protects and promotes the welfare of all workers and the organization. So chapter two looks at how your attitudes to work develop. So he refers to the kind of Western world uh, as having a certain sickness of people who are overambitious, high flyers and successful. So I thought it was interesting that the, the author kind of saw that as a, a negative thing. Because I suppose I would say it's not always negative. There are people who are ambitious and driven and successful. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a negative thing. But he does say that people are more often than not becoming fatigued, anxious, depressed, frustrated, unfulfilled and dependent on medication 
And I suppose that viewpoint, he is a psychologist or and working in that field. So he probably would have somewhat of a bias towards that, you know, talking to people who are perhaps burnt out or coming from that perspective. But I do think the emphasis throughout the book is that, you know, a lot of us are just working, working, working really hard, throwing ourselves into our work um, because that's what our culture is producing. You know, this sort of, you know, type A successful driven individual at the expense of all else. Um, and he talks about how we we shape our consciousness from early in childhood, that we learn what work is just from watching our parents. So I guess this is interesting in a generational sense that things have changed now. You know, a lot of people have both mom and dad working. So our children will come up through this differently than we have. But most of us would have probably grown up in a situation where more than likely dad went out to work and mom was at home doing the childcare and looking after the house. And so that may have shaped how we view work and how we see ourselves today in the world of work. And I think that's something that we all have to actively, you know, challenge in ourselves as well. And I think that was the thing that kind of brought me to this book. Um, I didn't have, my mother stayed at home and I didn't have a female role model who went on this career trajectory that I'm on. So I think a lot of my inner resistance to the role that I was being asked to do came around not having a blueprint or a roadmap that I could recognize in my own sphere, you know, and I just couldn't relate to it. I was like, but that's just not me. I can't see myself there. And it's because I didn't have any kind of close examples of that. So I had to go and find those for myself. Um, and it talks as well around perfectionism and attitudes in high achievers that might be blocking a development of actually loving their work um, and he talks a lot about the source of addiction to work fear and avoidance of work not totally lying within the family and school culture but prevailing in the economic climate and the culture of the workplace and society at large essentially um, and that these things are just reinforced by the work culture and the, the organisation that we might find ourselves working in um, he Lee, talks then I, I might just oh, yeah. ask a question just to kind of break it up for a second and just from from your perspective when you were taking on this new role and that brought on all that extra anxiety when you were you know at home um, on maternity leave was the role that you were doing previously that massively different and had you previously felt that about starting that role or another role or was this a whole new just experience mm. Yeah, I suppose I, I was working in sales in a sales team and I was there for maybe f five years, but I had two children in that time. So I did go out and come back again, but I, w I really, I really got to grips with my job and I loved my job and I was good at my job. So when I came back from my second maternity leave, I was asked to coach the team that I was on. And I guess that's when my, my challenges at work really started because I was taken out of my comfort zone. I was really comfortable with doing what I was doing. And then I was suddenly being asked to take that and replicate it across the team. So I found that deeply uncomfortable, but I kind of threw myself into it and I went and got training as a coach and I gave my all. But I think whatever was going on in the team and wider org at the time, there was a lot of uncertainty and change and they didn't really respond very well to having a coach on the team and I took that very personally um, and I also didn't feel that competent you know because it was new so I started to, the two things kind of conflated and I kind of left 
I went on maternity leave with this sort of feeling a bit despondent and ineffective. But before I went on leave, I was just, I was actually about to, I can say this now because I didn't, but I was going to hand in my notice because I was finding it really challenging and I wasn't happy necessarily towards the end of that year. And before I did, I, I went in to announce that I was pregnant with my third child. And before I did, they kind of put this new job on the table, which was to manage this team. And I just was blown away because I hadn't felt that it was going very well. Um, so I was like, why would you want me to manage this team? Because this, this thing that we're trying to do isn't necessarily working. But I think that was just because I had this, I wasn't feeling competent. So I was looking at things through a very skewed lens. Um, and then again, it was just rolling with resistance. I was like, okay, well, what, you know, I just give it a go. I don't want to just say no and you know not give it my all so I said yes went on, on maternity leave and the uh, the manager was so supportive of me that he did make it possible for them to, to kind of fill the role with supervisors while I was out so that I could come back in and and be the manager of this team so on that you know I felt you know I owed it to the organization for being so supportive of a woman in my situation because we read so many stories of people feeling discriminated against of women not getting these opportunities and maybe not even putting themselves forward for these opportunities um because you feel like oh I'm about to have a baby I can't do this so I felt I owed it to them and to myself to just give it a go but I, I realized while I was out that I was going to need some support to do that because of how I was feeling essentially about the job yeah okay very good yeah does that does that answer your question yeah, yeah. no totally yeah. just just good to know mm -hmm. the, the kind of the the circumstances i suppose before and how different they were and what you know what brought that up in you and yeah um, yeah i think one thing i mean i felt very supported by the org and by my manager in particular but in the wider org there wasn't really any it was very much go and do and, you know, figure it out on your way. You don't really get deep, deep management training or anything like that. So that was something that might have maybe been helpful. Um, but I think I managed to fill those gaps by doing courses elsewhere and stuff. So that was fine. Mm -hmm. uh, and reading this book <laughs> and others like it. Um, so it goes on in the next chapters to talk about, you know, when work determines worth. And I think this was what really set uh, kind of a switch went on or a light bulb went on when I read the, these chapters because I understood then that actually the problems that I was creating in my head about this job were, you know, they were in my head, first of all, um, and it was because I was linking my job and my performance in my role with my self-worth and conflating the two things when really they are two separate things. And that's what the, the author is really trying to drill home in this book. So if you have clients who are coming in and they're burnt out and they're depressed and they feel like failures or they're ineffective or what they're trying to do isn't working, you can be almost sure that they it's because they're over-identified with their job and they believe that their role has become somehow an extension of them and they're taking it all a bit too personally. So I thought that was a really useful concept for me to start to unravel that and step back and realize that I don't need to take these things quite as seriously as I was. And I don't need to build everything up in my head. I just need to go into work, do my job for the day, come home, park it, you know, and get on with my life outside of work. And I, I hadn't been able to do that for about a year, I would say. Mm -hmm. um, but what I think is interesting about this book is that it really looks at the source of these, of these problems, like why a person would be working too hard or become work addicted 
or on the other side of that spectrum, be work avoidant and not want to work at all. And he really does bring it back down to your earlier life and and the kind of modeling that you saw in your family and, and what the messages society were were giving you were. Um, he also talks about how work addiction and, you know, addiction to work um, is very intertwined with self-worth and that any conflict at work or any challenge at work can pose a serious threat to your health, your emotional and physical well-being. And these things often manifest physically as, you know, heart disease in men and uh, chronic fatigue like ME in women. And that's really common. So it's interesting that, you know, the it says the implication inherent in work addiction is that without my work, I am valueless and worthless. I think it's something we all have to be mindful of in the COVID era, if you like, because more and more the lines between work and home are blurred. And there is a danger that, you know, if you're working from home all the time and, and that kind of boundary becomes more and more blurred, that the two become one and it becomes very hard to, to separate and to see yourself as having value and worth outside of your, your job if, that, if it starts to creep out and take control of other aspects of your life. And I think, I suppose, in the current climate, it's harder to, to have boundaries around that. Mm-hmm. So he goes on to give indicators of work addiction. So there's a full list of things here, you know, can't say no to demands, works between 60 to 80 hours a week, rarely takes a holiday, has difficulty in delegating, takes work home, works weekends, is preoccupied with job matters, your job dominates your conversations, he misses meals due to, holiday, uh, due to job commitments, ends holidays or breaks off holidays due to demands and it goes on and on um it just gives us you know examples of what that might look like and also the effects of it physical effects mental effects emotional effects so i suppose this book would be a great guide for a coach who is working with executive clients or or career coaching and and wants to maybe build out a framework for recognizing these sort of things in a client um there's a lot of it's a really useful uh, kind of summary of the things to look for you know red flags mm-hmm. so i thought that was quite helpful uh, he says probably the saddest aspect of work addiction is the absence of deep and loving relationships work addiction is an emotional and social desert that can subconsciously strike at the very heart of those being addicted so i mean that also it sounds quite dramatic but um it's interesting you know to think of it that actually your work addiction it does manifest in your life through an absence of something as well, as opposed to just physical or emotional behaviors or, or symptoms. Um, okay. And then it talks about threats. So when threats occur in work. So when any threat to the work performance arises in a person who has issues around work and worth, this person will react either passively or aggressively. And something that might be a threat within the workplace would be a deadline, a change in management, new work structures, failure, drop in performance, criticism, comparison with colleagues, you know, or um, a pileup of work. So I suppose for me, I related to that in that it was the kind of change in my in my role and the new work structure posed a threat. And I suppose my reaction to that showed me that I actually did have some sort of an issue around work and worth that probably warranted a bit of exploring. Yeah. Um, and then it talks about, you know, the two typical responses would that you might see in, in colleagues or yourself would be being passive or aggressive in, in response to threats at work. So passivity might be someone becoming demotivated or 
you know, doing a lot of kind of undermining type things at work. Um, whereas aggression would be with your colleague or yourself becomes more complaining, outwardly hostile, maybe um, just rolling your eyes, being sarcastic at work, um, being outwardly aggressive, essentially. Whereas the more passive person might start pulling sick days or, you know, being late for meetings and, and not turning stuff in in time and so on. But both those kind of responses in yourself or in colleagues would give you a sort of a signal that there's something deeper going on around your your self-worth, self-esteem or how you're feeling internally about yourself. Um, and burnout would be the kind of final outcome of work addiction. It's the tail end um, of addiction to work. So that's what you're looking at if you're dealing with a work addicted person. Um, and it's kind of inevitable, I think that you end up burnt out if you don't address your work addiction at some point. Um, and I suppose the other things that are at risk if you're work addicted would be around family and friends, you know, that those are the things that sort of take the toll <laughs> if you are addicted to work due to the fact that you're at work instead of at home and looking after your, your family and your loved ones. So it just talks about that um, and things that you might do to offset that. Um, so chapter four talks about avoidance of work rather than this sort of work addiction. So when work threatens your work through avoidance, it means that your early experiences of learning were traumatic and you needed to develop strategies to reduce hurt, embarrassment and rejection. Avoidance of work is the most frequently employed protector and it is actually far more common than addiction to work. So I thought that was interesting because I didn't relate directly to that. But on the team over the year, we did have challenges as a group. And I suppose I did see the two responses and different characters coming through. And the avoidance one, I could never understand it because I, I didn't have that response myself. But this book really helped me to understand why somebody might react by not wanting to do things or maybe digging their heels in a bit. Because I, I remember being very frustrated in the year that I was coaching when particular people would, you know, just basically put their, <laughs> dig their heels in the sand and refuse to, to, to go forward. And I just couldn't get it. But after reading this chapter, um, it started to make more sense to me. Um, I, I never thought of it as a protective strategy. And what the book emphasizes is that, is that these avoidance or aggressive kind of responses to threats or they both serve a purpose to protect the person who's doing them you know so I think that enables you to become more compassionate towards that response in people whereas before I used to get so frustrated and I felt incompetent now I feel more able to look at the behavior and go oh okay this is just this is a self-protective behavior and I need to get to the understanding of what's going on for the person um, and it talks a bit about what these avoidance strategies might be. So I thought this was interesting. Um, there's indirect and direct avoidance strategies. So an indirect one would be being argumentative. Now, I would have never thought of argumentative as a way of avoiding something. But uh, after reading the book, I thought, ah, yeah, it distracts you from the issue at hand, you know. Um, exhibiting hostile facial expressions, showing timidity and fearfulness, reacting shyly, demonstrating nervousness and anxiety. I mean, I can relate to some of those things in myself as well. I would probably, the anxiety piece is something that I've, I've caught myself at, uh, at work doing, you know, kind of maybe leaning on anxiety a little bit to avoid the fact that I'm uncomfortable with doing something new, let's say. 
Um, and then direct avoidance strategies, being late, forgetting things, being careless, um, voicing don't expect too much of me, not volunteering to take responsibility or demonstrating average or below average efficiency um, and ignoring your responsibilities. And another one here is ignoring other people's irresponsibilities. So just being very passive in general. But again, I think what was interesting in this for me is that the fact that they're called strategies. So as a manager now, I suppose I would look at these kind of behaviors in a different way. Um, so the next chapter talks about when work is separate from worth. So now we're moving into the more positive half of the book. <laughs> so it talks a lot about the challenges and things that might show up and how you you know, might look at them differently um, when you see them as protective strategies rather than just bad behavior, if you like. Um, and then from chapter five onwards, it talks about people who love work and what love of work means. And this this half of the book kind of excited me because it's kind of what I'm, I'm working towards. I, you know, I want to go into work feeling a love of my job because we only have one life and, you know, you want to spend the majority of your time doing something that you do love. Um, and I realized I didn't want to leave my organization. And I didn't want to leave my job because I have great colleagues and I do love my job. But I did want to feel competent and able to do my job. So I suppose developing a love of work is the way to get there. And it says that only where there's an absence of fear can a love of work be present. And I, I like that, you know, absence of fear. So to love your work, you must deal with the fear, basically. And I thought that was a good pointer for how, how to go forward. Um, fear entangles worth and work and the more intense the fear the greater the enmeshment fear will be absent if in an individual's earlier experiences learning and work were rarely confused with worth as a person and I suppose that struck home with me because a lot of my fear around career and work probably did come from whatever was going on when I was a child and I suppose my dad would have been the breadwinner and gone out to work my mom was at home and you know, I won't go into the personal story, but um, certainly I felt a lot of pressure, academic pressure in particular, and I didn't really live up to the expectations that my family put on me in, in my 20s. And I think I carried that around with me then. So when I finally did find a career that I was starting to excel in, let's say, um, it didn't fit, it didn't feel right to me because of those, you know, old fears that I was carrying along with me. So I think it's, the book is absolutely right that you just need to you need to deal with those fears and drop them because um, I saw you know this this fear isn't serving me and again a lot of it was something I was building up in my own mind um yeah so it goes on to say about indicators of love of work so I suppose if you're working with clients who are coming for help um these are the kind of things you might want to set as goals and for myself, these are things that I, I want to feel when I go into work every day. Um, is ambitious, is eager to learn, seeks new challenges, has high concentration, shows initiative, is highly responsible, is fair and honest, shows low absenteeism, is respectful, communicates clearly and directly. Um, so I think this is a really good roadmap to me for how, how I might want to show up in work, you know. Um, is intolerant of injustice is assertive about rights of self and others has an enriching personal and interpersonal life apart from work is conscious of employers needs and is efficient and effective 
So it says here, you may think that the employee who exhibits these characteristics is God's gift to an employer. That is not always the case as an employer who is insecure and is protectively manipulative, controlling, aggressive, unfair or exploitative would be highly threatened by such a mature worker. So I thought that was interesting, the idea that actually, even if you are this person, maybe your organization or your employer, if your employer isn't secure, um, might feel threatened by that and actually work against you to, you know, sap your energy and take those traits and turn them against you. So the love of work isn't just reliant on the employee. It's also a lot to do with the employer and the culture that they foster. And I suppose it's probably, it is relevant to larger organizations, but that kind of dynamic could really play out uh, for smaller employers who are maybe only have a few direct reports or, you know, if it's a small family business or something like that. Um, he talks a bit then about the effects of your love of your work. So confidence, competence, good health. And there seems to be throughout the book, this theme of health and, and wellness and well-being. Um, so I suppose, you know, he probably sees people who are burnt out and that work has taken a toll on their physical and mental health as well. Real sense of self, balanced and healthy lifestyle, high earning power, progressive career, strong relationships with others, marriage and family life is a priority, openness to change, inspiration of others to love their work and resistance to conformity. Um, I thought that was really interesting resistance to conformity I suppose because I work in a, a large organization with a really strong work culture and it's not always that easy to resist um, conformity it's, it wouldn't be something that's encouraged I would say but then you know I do wonder do people who make it into leadership positions if they love their work do they maybe know how to do that in, in a proactive and safe way within that environment um those who love work have real confidence because they believe in their vast capability and no experience of failure weakens that conviction. So I think that's about a growth mindset, really. Um, and it's interesting that, I mean, I was asking myself the question, does that mean that somebody, in order to have a growth mindset, you must love your work, you must have a love of work? Maybe the two things go hand in hand. Um, yeah. Um, so the next part of the book, he talks about threats to those who love work. So for people who do love work, a threat that they might encounter is being told they're selfish or demand being made demand to overwork or underwork, being labeled do-gooders, disrespectful treatment of self or colleagues, bullying of self or colleagues, non-listening or being ostracized. So somebody who has a love of work and is doing well because of that might be might hear people saying about them that it's all me, me, me. Um, and that people might resent you for having a balanced approach to life. Um, and also that you might find yourself being asked to, to work longer hours. Um, but a person who really loves work won't actually do that. A firm no will be voiced. So it sounded like to me, someone who has a love of work also has mastered good boundaries and has an ability to say no when they need to and is kind of unapologetic about having a balanced life and interests outside of work and, you know, an ability to clock off at the end of the day. So I thought that was interesting because our culture probably rewards the opposite, you know, the person, and I, I know I see it in our org as well. Like we do go home on time, but there are different departments in, in our organization where, 
you definitely get a medal for staying longer, you know, and if you leave your desk, the first person to get up is, is never a good thing to be the first person to go home and it would be noticed. And I think it's interesting that in the same organization, you can have many different cultures emerging on different teams. Um, and I found that interesting in itself, actually. Uh, and it was good for me to realize while I read that book as well, that uh, actually the team I'm on is pretty healthy in that regard. So that was that was good. <laughs> um, it goes on as well to talk about causes of love of work. Um, the experiences that lead to a love of work are opposite of those described for addiction to an avoidance of work. Conditionality is the hallmark of addiction and avoidance, and unconditionality is the hallmark of love of work. So it's the same as that idea that comes through in parenting, if, if any of you are parents, about uh, you know, if you're ever criticizing your children, that you're not criticizing them as people. If something if something goes wrong, that you look only at the behavior and you love your children unconditionally and you treat them as unconditionally lovable beings who have just made a mistake and that you're able to separate um, the behavior from the person. So for love of work to emerge in a person, they need to have had parents or teachers who demonstrated this to them, parents or teachers who balanced their own home and work life, parents or teachers who challenged themselves in many aspects of life, parents or teachers who related unconditionally to others. So, okay, you may have messed up, but I still, I still like you, I still value you. And I suppose it's the same in an organization that we, we treat employees in the same way. Parents or teachers who encouraged and supported them and were positively firm on responsibilities inside and outside the home and school. And also a belief shown in the vast capability of human beings. So again, this, this idea of love of work comes back to our roots and our early experiences. And I thought that was interesting. And it did cause me to look a bit deeper at my own you know, family environment when I was a kid and just maybe do some reflection on well, what was it actually like at home and what was I learning from my mother and father just by watching them in their domains of, of home and work. Um, and I think if somebody, an adult who doesn't have a love of work wants to develop a love of work, we do need to go back into the past and maybe do a little bit of exploration about where did this come from? And also what kind of, uh, what are we modeling for our own children and our, our, our partners? Um, so why people work is, is the subject of chapter six. And it talks about, you know, it being important not only for us to understand what motivates us to work or not to work, but also that employers and organizations detect these whys and the advantages and disadvantages of the work patterns of employees. So it says here, not surprisingly, organizations are quick to pinpoint individuals who are low in motivation, fearful of change, difficult or aggressive, but it is short-sighted not to detect those who also are addicted to work, as it's a high possibility that these workers will experience burnout. Um, and it also probably doesn't easily identify people who do love their work. You know, the reasons for working are unique to each person, so... I think it's interesting for ourselves to ask, you know, if you identify your why, then it's a lot more likely that you're going to move towards work that is connected to that why and that you're, it's your values that are driving your reason to go to work every day, as opposed to a feeling of a necessity. Um, and everyone's why or reasons to work will be different. So I think if you have an inner conflict about your job, for example, or you're not happy in your current workplace, 
the, the quickest way to, to figure out if it's actually the job or if it's you is, is to do a values assessment and, and really ask yourself what's driving you to go to work in the first place. Um, it talks a lot as well about belonging. So the belonging motivation to work and, and that it's often a product of either not feeling included in your family of origin or to be not feeling like you're a member of a symbiotic family. So if you're dealing with a, a client or even in yourself, if, if you go to work to belong, then you can pretty much guess that maybe you need to look at your family of origin and, and why, you know, question, did you feel that you didn't belong in your family or did you feel displaced at home? Uh, and that may be the area that you need to work on if, if that's the case. Um, so it talks about the difference between balanced people and imbalanced and the reason why balanced people work will be very different from the reason why imbalanced people work because the motivations are very different. So a balanced person isn't coming from this place of insecurity or, or lack. They, they toil for a reason, you know, other than the reasons the addicted or threatened by work person does. And the difference is in the way that these who are balanced those who are balanced approach their work. Work relationships themselves and the environment are treated with awe and respect, but rarely does work take precedence over self or others. And I think that's really important. Um, so again, it's, it's not about the culture you're going into, it's how you're treating yourself and others within that space. Um, I suppose it's just a question for us all to ask ourselves as well. Like, are we taking a balanced approach to work? And why do we why do we work every day? Is it to be financially secure, to be free, to be challenged? Because according to the the author, only about five to ten percent of people have experienced a very mature and balanced, balanced upbringing themselves. And so it's true that maybe about five to ten percent of people are probably balanced at work. And I mean that's that's a stark um, statistic, really. And the ten percent comes through in the book again later. He says that only 10% of people who retire do so with, with a view to continuing to do something that they love in, in their retirement years. Um, and it says that 10%, the rest of the 90% of people probably go into retirement feeling quite lost and directionless. So um, it's important that we address these issues before we get to that, that phase of life. Because um, I suppose the rest of us here want to retire no that we still have a huge adventure ahead of us not going out of the workplace place and feeling totally lost um, he talks about he says if any of these issues in the book are sort of you know striking a chord with you that the best way to tackle them is to get support a lot of this is common sense but I suppose it, it does provide a roadmap to somebody who might be struggling with some of the questions that have been raised in the book um, so support for change can come from a partner, a friend, self-development group, colleague, employer, you know, the, the employee assistance program or a coach working with a psychotherapist or a psychologist. These are all things that you might like to, to draw on if you are having these, these challenges. And I suppose myself, I, I mean, I don't want to go into the too nitty gritty, but like I did get this book given to me by a, a clinical psychologist who knows the author personally. And, um, I could have spent, you know, weeks going through different sessions with him, but actually this book, I think I read it in about three hours and it, it, it gave me the answers that I needed quite quickly. So it saved me a lot of time. 
dredging through thoughts, thought processes over, you know, six to eight sessions. Um, he talks about finding balance and giving work its proper place. So, you know, a typical balanced work week would look like a maximum of eight hours working day, weekends free, adequate breaks, time with your partner, time with your children, time with yourself, time for exercise, you know, maximum, a minimum 40 minutes per day, contact with friends and family, social outings, healthy diet. And I suppose at this point, most of us on the call are going, ha ha, nice, yeah, right. Like, how do you do all of that? But the point of the book is that actually these are the exact things you need to be doing to to be balanced and successful and have a love of work. So I suppose that would be the roadmap. That would be where I'm focusing my energy now is how do I create these kind of weeks in, in, in my diary that I am switching off at the end of the working day. I do keep my weekends free and that I'm unapologetic about it as well, you know, and that you schedule that time for yourself as well as the kids and time with your partner and so on. And we hear it all the time. I'm sure we see it online all the time. But I think it's it's really down to us as individuals to just prioritize those things. Um, and I suppose it's not a it's 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 quite it sounds obvious when you say it out loud, but if you actually look at yourself and look at your diary, I think most of us I could guess that most of us will find that we don't do that. So if you don't do that, um, I hope the takeaway from this call will be to go and, and revisit your weekly schedule to try and reflect that balanced lifestyle. Um it talks a bit about worker cultures, you know, where the work culture comes from. Um, and then it gives sort of a kind of the last chapter is around management and how to be a good manager, which this was probably the most relevant chapter for me personally, because that's where, where I'm at at the moment. Um, but it talks first about managing yourself. How do I regard myself? How would I describe myself? Do I feel threatened by work? Do I attempt to prove myself through work? Would I describe myself as passive, aggressive, assertive? Um, so it really was, that chapter was a roadmap to, if you are a manager, you know, getting yourself with your two feet on the ground and um, coming at it from a position of self-worth as opposed to feeling defined by your role or addicted to work or, or avoidant of work. And it talks a bit about managing staff morale um, managing yourself within the organization's constraints um, and also principles of transformational management. Um, and a lot of this chapter was really about respect for self and others, um, which I thought was really important because I think in, in the environment that we're in at the moment, a lot of it is about KPIs and metrics and the number. And I've noticed that anytime we get too focused on that in the organization, teams start to crumble so it's really pointed me in the right direction where I need to go with my own team and luckily we're a small team so it's quite easy for me to do this and it's really just about spending time with people connecting with people on a daily basis and giving them the space to make their own decisions and trying to empower them to take ownership of their work instead of micromanaging um, and you know just gives a few pointers about how to deal with conflict and you know how to not be an overpowering manager um, and how, you know, what will happen if you're a, a passive manager, for example. I think that's the, the space that I'd be at risk of going into is maybe being a bit fearful of tackling issues. So just sort of taking a step back and, and being too passive. And you really, it is about striking the, the balance and being in the middle ground between assertive and, and allowing, let's say. Um, yeah, so 
the final chapter talks about how to prevent the enmeshment of work and worth. So it just says that you need to focus on restoring the eagerness to learn. Um, so I thought that was interesting that learning is sort of seen as the pivotal uh, thing here. Um, and that loss of, of love of learning happens quite young. So that maybe, you know, you do need to go back and explore those roots. And that the first thing to do for those in positions of leadership, so parents, teachers, employers and managers, is to create unconditional relationships with self and with others. And that the second step is to ensure that work and learning environments pose no threat to the desire to learn. Um, I work in the education space, so we, we work in education. So I, I was really happy that learning was the root of, of all things in this book. Um, and really, it was just about fostering an environment that, first of all, that people respect themselves and love themselves and others, and that they then have a primary focus focus on developing a love of learning and creating an environment where everyone wants to learn. And then if you have those two things in place, the rest will follow. And that's sort of it. And I'm at the end of the book now, so I'll stop talking. <laughs> yeah. Great job, Neve. Yeah, you've fairly gone through that. I, as always, take oodles of notes and scribbles and lots of things. <laughs> connect very nicely there so no that was that was cool if i was to ask you one question on what 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 tool or approach do you use that you find most effective either from the book or from your coaching stuff that you've done that that helps you kind of keep the the balance that you you know you're you're working towards now is there any one thing that you you kind of use as a go-to um i suppose uh, I, I know it's probably a really, it's it's a very well-known tool, but the Wheel of Life, I kind of adapted a Wheel of Life for myself. Um, I have it just saved on, on a pages file actually on my computer and I use it as a check-in just for me. I don't do it with someone else. I just, just do the numbers. So where am I at? So you draw a circle if you haven't seen the Wheel of Life. I imagine most people have seen a version of it on the, their travels, but um, you draw a circle, you divide it into eight slices like pizza and you choose the eight segments that are most relevant to you. So it could be work, family, finances, etc. And then you rate from naught to 10. Where are you in terms of how, how positive or negative you're feeling or how okay are you in this area? So zero would be not good at all and 10 would be perfect. And it's a really quick way of assessing where you're at as a whole picture, a big picture kind of thing. And it also will show you if you have high numbers, obviously those areas of your work, of your life are going well. And the really low numbers are probably where you want to draw your immediate attention to. But, you know, the high numbers also tell you why, why are those things going so well? And, and can you bring any of that, whatever's working there, into the areas that, that, that need attention? So that would probably be my go-to mm -hmm. for a quick kind of assessment of where I'm at. Yeah. And then the other thing is there's a lot of free tools online about strengths and values assessment tools. I like to check in with them every now and again just to you know, make sure that I am in alignment with, with what, what matters to me. Mm -hmm. What about you, Rob? Have you got uh, something that you, you can like see my, my, my whiteboard over there at the moment, but I used the oh, nine yeah. box, the nine box grid that, um, I think I got it out. One of the first self-help books I ever read was Susan Jeffers, the, um, uh, feel the fear and do it anyway one and oh yeah I use there was a nine box grid in that similar to the wheel of life where you have nine boxes and basically you do an exercise of where your life is at now can you fill out those nine boxes in equal quantities in, in you know all the things that are important to you and 
typically when I use it in coaching and stuff, people get to about four or five and then just run out of things to put in the boxes and they're totally out of whack and out of balance. Um, and then use that like like you maybe just once a week or have it on the whiteboard and just look at it to see if I'm ticking all those boxes over the course of a week have I spent a bit of time in each one of them um, to keep a, keep a nice balance and it's so simple but very powerful yeah that's great I suppose I'm I'm curious as well like this book has really helped me um, but I'm just wondering if there's anyone on the call who could relate to any of, of the stuff that has been brought up in the book um is this a common challenge for people or am i the only person in in ireland who's currently or i'm not i feel i'm no longer battling with this but i was you know about six months ago oh, right. about, oh yeah sorry Declan, go on. no i was gonna say i i absolutely loved this your summary of the book and i'll definitely have to order it and i resonated with so much of it um I suppose for me at the moment, I've started a new business and it's really difficult. And this is my second time starting a business, so I should know. Um, but your your own self-worth just gets so wrapped up in it. And if it's, you know, you know that it's slow starting a business and it's going to be difficult, but you start to really, I suppose, doubt yourself. And like the things I just wrote down there as you were talking was just in terms of expectations of ourselves. And then when they're not met, our self-worth, you know, gets... Mm-hmm. Um, damaged and then the kind of truths that we tell ourselves so we feel we're not competent and so then you know well we're no good at this you know these kind of things and then just like how how we treat ourselves as well um you said that you know work needs to be words so i thought that fabulous um uh, things like profession is and just I suppose not putting work at the centre of everything and all of our worth wrapped around it that's that really stood out for me um and some of the avoidance strategies um I wondered does he talk at all about people who who step out of the workforce um because I've seen that with friends, with people I've coached and even I feel for myself I went the self-employment route because almost in a way I had different issues over the years in different organizations. And so I feel like I probably didn't deal with it, probably just avoided it. You know, does he talk about that at all? Um, I think he does, actually. I Off the top of my head now, I can't find the pages where he would, but he definitely talks about how you know, that that response in a way it was kind of blaming the the organization for for people doing that mm-hmm. i thought but it, it talks about the myriad of responses so he does touch on people who choose not to work for whatever reason and i suppose like you say it, that can be something that's you know either permanent or, or a temporary thing that people choose to do um i suppose it is part of the tail end of burnout as well it might be common that people burn out and then step away mm-hmm. and i suppose there's probably a dual responsibility there for the person who hasn't, you know, has had self-worth issues that have led to that, but also the organization that sustained an environment that allowed that. Um, so he does talk about that, but I, I'll have a look actually, maybe I'll, I'll find the pages where, where that's referred to because I have sticky notes throughout this book and I could email on this segment to you if you want, or I'll pass it on to Rob and ask him to pass it on to you. Thank you. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I thought it was fabulous and really interesting. So thank you very much. Thanks. Yeah. Me, for me, fantastic. Um, one, I'd love to work for you, given the fact that uh, 
you're you're aware of all this kind of stuff, you know, like and that that book, it just sounds like a, a quick shortcut. As you were saying, you, you maybe don't need to spend six, nine, twelve months navel gazing. That it's it's nice to be able to refer to a frame that just just nails it for you. That actually yeah. just gives you that roadmap as you call it. But uh, I think I think the identity thing is is a massive thing that I see in my work. Is, is is what you choose to hang your hat off are, are you you know uh, an athlete um you know a mother uh, a businessman uh, whatever it might be but if you if you hinge your self-worth and identity to just just one thing then mm-hmm. you're really at the mercy of 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 uh, coming a cropper really and yeah. uh, we see it all the time and, and i suppose what's lovely then is that you give the roadmap as to as to why that might be but i think what really hit home for me there is is um when you're talking about fear at work like that's something that's probably not really spoken about at least not openly that mm-hmm. is like you know sometimes it's hard for us as adults to say i'm afraid or i'm, I'm scared but that culture of fear that feeling of fear is just so so common you know that you know in a meeting you might be afraid to challenge a view or to, or to even to speak your voice. Um, and I, I think that um, pervades so many uh, cultures in, in work. And uh, I, I don't know, I mean, that, that concept of, of fear, I think, is, is a really interesting one to explore. Um, yeah. Do you know, do you have any thoughts of that yourself, just on, on, on that? Um, well, it's interesting because I would say our team was probably riddled in fear and I, I wouldn't want to blame any one person. I think it was just so many different things going on, like change in the org, change in the team, different management styles. And just so much was happening um, that all our meetings were, I think it was dominated by silence. Um, and now I've come back and everyone's using their voice. And I can't really say what has changed. There's a few elements have changed, but I think what happened was the coronavirus meant that people suddenly had to adapt very quickly to working from home in chaotic situations with children and all sorts of pets and everybody running around and that people had to use their voice. It was, you had no choice really because otherwise you would literally be drowned out by the sound of your child or dog or whatever in the background. So that's gone. And I, I can't really, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what, it, what were the unique things happening that, did away with the fear and I just I hope that I don't come back now and (laughs) bring it back with my own fears you know but um I think it's really I think it really is about creating that safety a safe environment for people to speak up um and how do you do that um I think coaching lends us a really good solution because it is all about asking questions um so very gently batting things back to people as a coach would do, you know, because people come to you, what do I do? And I'm like, I don't know, what do you do? And literally, you don't have to do much. You just have to reflect it back. That kind of mirroring thing, I think that works really well to create safety if it's done in the right way. Because, yeah, I think using humor as well, if, if you happen to be blessed with a good sense of humor or an ability to tell a joke, like um, it can really relax the environment. So if you have a round table and you ask a question and it's dead quiet in the room, just use humor to try and lighten the mood. But it is really just try to foster that safe environment where it's okay to say something stupid or there are no stupid questions. Um, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And I think voicing and talking about as well, like I think, 
I, I've been quite open with people that I'm, I have was petrified of this role and that I almost didn't take the role because I was afraid. And I think that's helped people to see that, like, you know, we're all the same, really. Um, I didn't want to do this fake it till you make it thing because I think that pervade, you know, makes the problem even worse because that's a false, a false self being projected outwards. And it's not true. And I think imposter syndrome flourishes in that environment where people who don't feel competent are basically pretending that they do. I don't think that gets you anywhere in the long term. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're giving everybody yeah. else permission to be wrong in some instances. And I think that when I've seen it in leadership where they just won't admit they're ever wrong, it just creates a fearful environment because then nobody wants to ever commit admit that they're, they're wrong at all, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. And actually, Aoife, um, there was one thing in the book. It does say that entrepreneurs and self-employed people tend to be more balanced, healthier, and live longer, <laughs> which, which is actually the opposite of what I would have assumed, you know, because my partner is self-employed. And I was like, I'm going to give him this book because, you know, uh, I find it hard to believe because he'll never take a holiday. But uh, it does emphasize uh, that actually, I suppose if you're motivated enough to, to go out on your own and fearless enough to do that, um, then you're probably likely to put yourself first because I think you do have to put yourself first to exit from a toxic work environment or a corporate situation that's not giving you that fulfillment. So you're one step ahead of the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> not sure about that. I thought I thought it was interesting the the spectrum between addicted to work and loving work because yeah. people at either end can look very similar. You know, they can act very similar. And when you started listing out the checklist for addicted to work, I was worried I was going to hit the boxes, but I didn't. A lot of them I missed. Well, so. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like uh, the John Ronson psychopath test. Everyone reads the book to see how they how they raise themselves. And nobody admits it when they are actually <laughs> taking those boxes either. <laughs> yeah. But is there... um. Uh, maybe I missed it. Apologies if I did. Did he give any tools for moving along that line from addicted to loving? Um, keeping the energy it, and keeping the focus, but moving up the. Yeah, the main thing he said was about uh, seeking support. And the first thing, sorry, I have a note here about this exact thing. It was about awareness. So no, step one is awareness. And then step two was seeking Like all support. addictions. Yeah, exactly. And it is, it's basically like he does actually refer to alcoholism in the book as well. So I think any kind of 12 step program, you know, the frameworks are actually very similar across these things. So he just talks about first awareness, then support so that you can start exploration um, towards balance, essentially. So I guess it means, you know, maybe go to counseling or a coach, um, talk to your friends and family and sign up for fitness regimes go to that dietitian you know just get get those resources in place from all angles um get a final you know talk to a financial advisor go for a time management course on, on linkedin or you know do all those things that you need to do to get that balance across the board um and i think it it, it does take time as well he talks about that that it's not something that happens overnight um, but once you have the awareness, like Declan said, is you, you don't have to navel gaze for 12 months either. That can all kind of, and like with coaching, you know, you don't necessarily need a lot of sessions. Sometimes it only takes one or two. 
But once you have the awareness and you reach out for the support that the results, you know, the, the answers kind of come quite quickly or can come quite quickly in your exploration of, of what's going on. Yeah. That's it. Does that answer your question? Or I know there's probably yeah, a lot yeah, more yeah. in the book than, yeah. Oh, enough to get the book, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's great. And he's actually, I think he's from Cork. He's definitely Irish anyway. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I've heard him. He's a lot of books out, and I'm looking. I was looking at my shelf there because I, I remember I, I sometimes go to Vibes and Scribes in Cork, the secondhand bookshop, and pick up oh, a yeah. ton of books every few months just to um, to dive through. And there's a lot in coaching. I've seen some of his stuff in there. If, if that one rings a bell, I don't think I, I bought it. I haven't read it yet, anyway. But I think he's banned in Direction or something like that. So he's definitely Cork. Oh, well. Yeah. And actually, the guy who recommended the book is Tony O'Reilly, and he's a, a therapist, a psychologist, psychotherapist in, in Cork City. But um, he's fantastic. I would say if you're ever feeling burnt out or you have challenges, um, he specializes in EMDR therapy, but he does general therapy as well. And I, you know, I wouldn't be one who goes to therapy a lot, but for this issue, I really was getting overwhelmed and, and it, he helped me a lot very quickly. So I would highly recommend him. Very good. Any other questions, guys? Well done. No, I think you've, uh, you've definitely brought a lot to, to tonight's session Neve. thanks so much for doing it we hope uh, thanks for having me we hope you're now, now part of the, the the inner circle here and you're, you can come along to the next the next <laughs> sessions as well because every every one so far you know some of the similar topics are coming up but um, each one is, is different in its own right and really really interesting so so it's great to have you uh, give us that summary tonight Great, and thanks, thanks for the uh, time. And uh, yeah, if you're, if you're struggling with work uh, and worth, do read the book. It's I would highly recommend it. Brilliant. Thanks, Thank everybody. You. Thank you. Have a good evening. Thanks, guys. Bye. 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 B